It's good to be up here this morning. We're just going to meditate on a psalm this morning. I hope that's okay. Psalm 62. We're going to just see what God has to say to us through uh, David's experience and the words that he's given to him. Uh, I find that in the push, the rush, the busyness of life, it's hard for me to kind of get perspective at times. Uh, If you watch TV at all, you know that there is kind of this present right now, this old game show that now just inhabits every channel of of any station that you turn on with your cable or dish. Family Feud. I'm sure it's on every station. I turn on the TV and there's Steve Harvey. And he's a nice guy, but, um, and you know, it's a fun show. They had a question this week on Family Feud, and they asked a hundred men, they said, what are you really doing when your wife accusing you of, accuses you of sitting there and doing nothing? Now, some of you wives have answers already. I don't know why you asked the question. Um, but for those guys, some answers come to mind, and as that question came up, I thought, well, I could do pretty well on this, and so I'm thinking, I missed it completely. You know what the number one answer to what are you doing when your wife accuses you of sitting there doing nothing? You know what the number one answer was? Sitting there doing nothing. (laughs) I don't know anybody that does that. Have you ever, did you schedule time this week to do nothing? I mean, I look around, I don't ever see that happening. I think people are doing worthless things. I mean, I think I do worthless things. I think things that don't really have a lot of meaning, but not nothing. But God tells us that, you know, that in order to gain perspective in life correctly, that we ought to do just that. Be still. And in the midst of our lives, you see people spinning their wheels. You see people running fast. You see people hurrying to get this done so that they can get that done. Um, I had my, uh, two of my grandkids and my daughter and son-in-law here, and over the past couple of weeks, we had a big family event a, a week ago. And uh, so my house has not been peaceful uh, for the past couple of weeks because of all that's been going on. I mean, all of the old toys are back on the floor in the way, and, and kids are up and down. You can't talk here. You can't go there. I mean, all those things that go on with that, I love it, but it just makes it a little bit more active. And, I, and then I read, hear that and say, doing nothing. I can't, I can't imagine that. Um, because the technology that comes with life now, whether it's uh, your iPhone, your iPad, your computer, and your Twitter, your Facebook, your uh, Pinterest, whatever the things you're connected to, checking your email from, from your friends, but also from work, and, and all those things that grab our attention, whatever your interests are, you keep up with those. I mean, on Friday, I was diligently watching the, the uh, internet to see who the Cubs traded for, and whether the White Sox did anything, and and 15 minutes later, I think, well, maybe they've decided now, you know, and so you just kind of keep going back, but it just adds to that frantic pace that we get. And when we succumb to that frantic pace, and we chase our kids around, and we get them here, and we aspire for them to be there, and we wish they were this, you know, and we do all those things to accommodate that, it pushes us to stress, emotional stress, and, and uh, exhaustion, and 
frustration and bitterness and depression pushes us to a more extreme sense of really burnout or severe depression. And God says the answer to that, in fact, you'd get this answer from your health professional. If you went to a a psychologist or someone with those issues, one of the first things they'd have on the list would be, you need to step back and rest. You need to get some time away. If you read a book, it would be in the list. First things you do, do these five things. It would be at the top of the list. Say, take a rest. Get some time away. And those words come from Scripture. Psalm 62 tells us that. It starts out with, my soul finds rest. But you find that the answer that you get from just going away, and maybe from your secular encouragement, is incomplete. Maybe even those people who are well-meaning and tell you to get away, I mean, maybe they're kinder than that, go take a break, get a rest. The psalmist tells us it's find rest and. It says, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. It's not just rest. It's rest in God. It's rest in finding that perspective of who God is so that we can live our lives in the right way. He pulls us in. It's be still and. And in Psalm 62, as David's writing these words, he's anything but restful. Most commentators think the struggle he addresses in this psalm is the rebellion of his son Absalom, as his son is trying to take the throne from him, trying to grab power from him. So that's not real restful. It's cause for distress. David had just recovered from a severe illness. He'd gone through some severe sickness, but God had restored him. Not too many years earlier, David had sinned with Bathsheba. He'd confessed that, but the weight of it had to still be there in his life. He had ordered a murder of Bathsheba's husband. So as this rebellion occurs... He's not in a great emotional state. He's feeling the pressures of life. He's probably wondering, you know, and doubting his leadership, his qualifications. Maybe this is part of God's judgment in his life. Maybe God's just saying, okay, it's time to take, you know, full, full, uh, judgment on the problems that you've, you've uh, had in your life. So in the midst of this, he finds he can't trust his children. They're rebelling against him. He can't trust his counselors because they've gone over to his children's side. Can't trust his people. Their loyalty has been dragged over to Absalom's side, it seems. But as he gets apart seeks to gain perspective and finds rest, he finds what he can trust. Psalm 62. Let me just read these words for you. You can follow along. I'm in the New International Version. So, Psalm 62. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down, this leaning wall, this tottering fence? 
They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for he is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. This psalm is divided pretty much into three parts. We'll cover them that way, for those of you that like to think in that logical frame. The first four verses, David describes the adversity he's facing. Then the next three verses, he gives us some advice. And then in the last verses of the psalm, he gives us some stronger admonitions. And he reminds us right at the beginning, or he, lets, he makes us aware of the struggle that he's going through. He, he reminds himself, first of all, of his defense. And I think when you're expecting an attack or you're feeling an attack, you, it's natural to say, okay, what are my defenses? If you're going to fight a battle, you look around to see, okay, how strong are the walls? Where can we hide? What, what weapons do we have? You look for your defenses. And David reminds himself of that, reminds us, I, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He, sa- he sees his defense is in God. His salvation is there. Even though the enemies are attacking, he's already been promised salvation. He knows he's going to win. He's going to win what God wants him to win. So his rest needs to be in him. So that's where his defense is. His defense also is in his security. I mean, it is his fortress, his strong tower. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will never be shaken. J.B. Phillips put it this way. He said, those who would do us harm simply do not have the power to move us if God is our defense. Do we live our lives like that, or do we let those worries about our defense and the attacking people or enemies, struggles of life, make us fret and worry? But if our defense is in God, there is no problem. It's just an opportunity. So David tells us about his defense, and then he goes on to describe his danger. So starting in verse 3, he says, How long will you assault a man? He's being assaulted. He's got enemies that are pushing on him. And they're pushing, they know him well enough to push at the right places. He says, How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Maybe some of you right now in your, your yards have a tottering fence. My neighbor has one. I'm fixing the backside of their fence fairly regularly. 
screwing boards back in, putting other supports there, because I don't want their fence to come down. But if I was going to push that fence down, I know right where to push it. David's enemies knew his weak spots. They knew that he was probably questioning his leadership. They knew he probably had doubts about God's blessings in his life because of the sins that he'd committed. They knew that the people were not standing behind David right now. David was weak. He couldn't even trust his children. So what are your weak spots today? Where is Satan pushing on you? What are those areas of the fence that if we pushed, the whole thing would come down? Because that's where Satan's going to attack. That's where he's going to bring pressure to bear to see if he can overcome you in your spiritual walk. That's what David was saying. I've got to, I've got to hold on to my strong defense because, of, because I have weak spots. Recognize your weak spots. Don't let Satan exploit, exploit them. And, but then recognize that your strong defense is the fortress that God is. And so while your wall may be weak, it will lean back on the fortress. I don't have to worry about my neighbor's fence because I have a strong chain link fence within a foot of it. If it comes down, it's not coming far. God is stronger than my chain link fence for your life. He is a fortress. He is a rock. It's not going any place as long as we rely on him. His enemies were not only pushing, they were plotting. The enemies are working to overcome with lies and hypocrisy. They take delight in lies. They are dishonest with us. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they're cursing. They're trying to take over. What lies are you believing today? that people might be saying about you. I hope you have the wisdom as we're in the presidential election. I mean, how long is a presidential election season? What, two years now? I hope you have the good sense not to believe anything any of the candidates say, especially if they're saying it about another candidate. They take the grain of truth or the statement and they twist it to accommodate their desires and demean the person they're opposed to. That's what our enemies do, do, do to us. That's what Satan does to us. He takes a grain of truth, but then he twists it so that it will have a negative effect in our lives or make others think evil of us or bad of us. So David's danger comes from you know, the, you know, the, those enemies that are pushing his weak spots and his own doubts. It's people that are plotting against him. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, preached on these two verses. And uh, from his sermon, he gave five exhortations, he called them, as we walk with God and try to rest in him. Let me just share those with you. I think they're worth just putting in your minds. Spurgeon first said to make God your only object in life. What do you live for? You're living for business, for fame, for reputation, for family. Uh, Live for God alone, is what Spurgeon is saying there. Make God your only object in life. Secondly, he said, have no care but but to please God. We want to please 
I want to please you today. I don't want you saying, what a terrible sermon Raleigh preached today. I mean, you know, but, but that can't be my goal to please you. My goal needs to be to please God, to speak his word, to speak his truth. So we get further into the psalm, you're going to find out that since I'm a man, my only value is hot air. That's what the psalm says, that my weight is not there. It's God that gives me weight. It's God that gives my words substance, not my words. I need to be speaking God's word, doing God's things. So we need to have no care but to please God. And in pleasing God, then of course we're going to please others because we're going to be kind and gracious and good and pure because that's what God tells us to be. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. Spurgeon says, make God your only dependence, only and alone. If you read through this psalm, you find those two words often. In fact, I think it was Spurgeon who called this the only psalm, in quotes, because it was so personal and it's so directed at God alone. Make God your only guide and counsel. When you have a decision to make, when I have a decision to make, what do I do? Well, I talk to myself, and I say, what, what should I do? And I try to get information. I might talk to some of you, You might talk to some others in here as you're trying to make a decision. Spurgeon is saying, make God your only guide and counsel. He went on to say, wouldn't it be great if when somebody came to ask for our advice, that our first answer would be, I will give you no advice until God has given you his counsel. Until you pray about it and seek God's direction, what do my words mean? God needs to be giving us our counsel. He can speak to us through others, but we need to sense God's work and ask him. And then finally, he says, wait or expect God's protection in time of danger. When we are facing adversity, we are facing struggles, we seek God's counsel and we tell him our issues, we ask and then we wait for him to work. That's a tough thing to do. I want to demand that God work. Now. But he says, wait for me to work. Be still. Rest. And know that I am God. Find your hope in God alone. Harv Russell is a a man that mentored me through high school and college. has been a good friend and and really a mentor all my life until he passed away just a couple of years ago. He was a great man of faith. I just counted a privilege to have known him and watched him, you know, live his life. I remember him telling me a story one time about it when he was studying at Moody. This has been the early 50s. And they were putting on a big evangelistic rally, a series of events, and then a big rally in Chicago. And so they had these different events, and then on Saturday they were doing a large evangelistic rally in Soldier Field. They came to Friday of this week, and all the forecasts were for nothing but rain on Saturday. It was going to rain all day, all night. So the administration, the teachers gathered the students and and the, the employees there at school to pray that God would hold back the rain. And so they did that. They prayed together and asked God that he would give 
clear skies, a break in the rain, so that they could hold this rally that they'd been preparing for and inviting people to. And the next day, on Saturday, Harv relates that he was walking from the campus downtown Chicago out to Soldier Field, and he was seeing some other students and others that he knew were going to the rally. And what startled him, and you have to know Harv to understand this, he believed in what they did when they prayed to ask. He said what he was startled by was that a lot of these people were carrying umbrellas. In his mind, we prayed for no rain. What are you doing carrying an umbrella? But how many times do we do that? Say, God, rescue me. God, answer my question. But then we've got these other plans constructed just in case. We need to trust God and wait for him. Expect his answer. Expect his direction. He says he will answer our prayers and lead us on. So there's David's adversity set forth, Spurgeon's encouragements there. Let's listen to David's advice. It's, it's not necessarily new advice, but it's profound advice. It's deep advice. In verse 5, he says, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my refuge. David is talking to himself. Do you talk to yourself? I do it a lot. It's not always kind. I'm not always nice to myself either. Um, But, you know, don't worry if you talk to yourself. It's okay to talk to yourself. It's even okay to answer yourself. But when you find yourself asking yourself to repeat yourself, you you know you got some problems there. But what we need to be telling ourselves is the truth. We need to speaking to speak truth into our lives. We need to speak God's Word. There's a book out there called Telling Yourself the Truth, which just really develops that and says, if you want to live a healthy life, you need to be speaking truth to yourself about who you are and the situation that you're in. Don't believe the lies. Don't come up with those, those other ideas. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. David says, be still, find rest. It needs repeating. He said almost the exact same thing in verse 1, and then again in verse 5. This time it's more direct, more personal. He says, as a statement of fact, find rest, O my soul. My soul finds rest, he says, and then in this one he tells himself, find rest. Obviously he wasn't feeling it quite there. Be still is what he starts with. Over nine times in these three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7, David uses the personal pronoun my, because this is all about him right now in a healthy way, about what he believes about God, how he trusts in God. And he says, find rest in. He doesn't say work for. He doesn't say strive to be. He says find rest. We get caught up in our striving. We get caught up in our working. Find your rest in God alone. There is no other answer. Find God as the source of your hope. What other source is there for hope? So he says, find rest. And he tells us as well to, he says, be still, be sure, because God is the rock of our salvation. 
He alone is my rock and my salvation. Be still, be sure. You can be sure. For your enemies to overcome you, if this is true, for your enemies to overcome you, they need to crush the rock, cancel your salvation, and conquer God's defenses. That's not going to happen. If we're on those defenses, God will be with us. Be still, be sure, and be strong. We're resting in the hands of a powerful God. We sang about that this morning. The reality of that is he is powerful. How do we live our lives? Mighty, rock, fortress. Those are the words that that, uh, David uses there. So be still, be sure, be strong. Then he goes on to be a little bit more direct, a little more admonition there in these remaining verses in the psalm. So from verses 8 on, he, he deals with that. He said, Trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And he then goes on to describe some people you shouldn't trust in. Who do you trust? And there's right trusting, and there's wrong trusting. In right trusting... David tells us that we need to trust at all times. So when we come to adversity, we need to ask ourselves, when do I trust? What's the answer? All the time. Not just when things seem to be stacked our direction, not just when God seems to be doing things our way, all the time. Trust in God at all times. He deserves our confidence because he is a a faithful, loving, dependable God. Trust in God at all times. Rest in that. Hudson Taylor, is that a name that rings a bell with some of you? He was a great missionary in the mid-1800s, pioneered China for, uh, with the gospel. There were missionaries in China, but they were kind of doing it the European way. He went over there and tried to work as a missionary, but found he wasn't being affected. He was kind of, there's a lot of resistance. So he decided, well, I need to dress like Chinese people. I need to wear my hair like Chinese people. I need to, uh, you know, just approach them on their own terms. So he started doing that. Everybody told him he was wrong to do that. Instead of basing on the coast where there was safety and security, he started taking a boat down the rivers to people who'd never seen a Caucasian before. He found that the communication back and forth to uh, England was too tedious to make decisions about how to do missions work. It would take two months to get a message there and ask a question and two months to get it back. So he decided the best thing to do would be to have an on-the-ground-in-China missions organization so they could move more strategically. He got pushback about all of that, but still he was very, uh, in, as we looked at him, as you saw his work, very successful. He was planting churches. He was winning people to Christ. He was gaining others to follow him in missions. He found himself overwhelmed and depressed. Couldn't understand why God would let him feel that way. Lord, I'm trying to do this for you. I'm working for you. I'm striving for this. And that's my goal, my heart. I've given you my whole life, my family. Feeling overwhelmed, one of his friends said, you need to get away. You need to rest. He did that. He talks about 
spending some time just with God, is the Scripture and by himself walking on a beach. And he said, really, he didn't say it this way, but suddenly it hits him. It changes his whole ministry, his whole life, as he begins to realize the difference between striving and rest. And he writes a letter back to his sister, who's back in England, and in the, in the body of this letter, he says, but how do I get faith strengthened? Here's what he found. Not by striving after faith, but by resting in the faithful one. Here's a man diligently working for God who is saying, it's all about rest. It's not about work. If we are in Christ, resting in him, our work will flow from that. But if we expect our rest and peace to flow from our work, we're in trouble. We need to be settled in who Christ is and what he's done. So when do you trust at all times? Why do you trust? Because God is our refuge. We can trust him. It says, pour out your soul to God. Trust in him and pour out your hearts to him. With my grandkids in the house, the three-year-old, I have to be careful with the terms I use if she's helping me do things. So if I'm trying to guide her in, in filling her glass with milk, I don't just say to her, pour the milk into the glass. Because pour is like this. Be careful when you slowly pour. See, I mean, I have to be careful with that. But God is saying, dump the whole load. Pour out your hearts to me. Don't hold anything back. Don't just trickle. Don't just whine. Let me know how you're feeling. Pour out your hearts to God. There's a fullness to that. And it's to God. It's not to somebody else. It's not to anybody else. Not that friends can't help you. But first pour your heart to God. Let him counsel you and guide you while he's bringing others into your path. It's healthy to talk to others about your issues, but not for them to be the bottom line. God needs to be the one working in your heart and life. Then he will work through others to affirm, to give you some more guidance. Pour out your hearts to God. So there's right trusting. We need to do it all the time. We need to do it fully to God. There's wrong trusting, too. He talks about three of those. There's probably more. And he, he's, he's not kind to people. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed in the balance, they are nothing. So don't trust in men. No matter the quantity or their appearance, don't trust them. Because they will fail you. Don't trust in might, high-born men, positions of authority, weapons, because they're a lie. And together, if you add up the, the weight, you, see, you can't trust in appearance, so how can you judge? You judge men by their weight. And God tells us how much they weigh. How much do low-born men weigh? They are a breath. How much do high-born men weigh? They're just full of hot air. And if you add breath and hot air together, how much do they weigh? Nothing. He said, don't trust in men. Don't trust in might. 
He goes on and says, don't trust in money. We're putting money away for retirement. We want to be sure when we reach this age we can live the way we ought to live, that God designed us to kick our feet up and do nothing, right? That's when you can do nothing. You know that's not true. But God says, don't trust in money, because money won't help you either, no matter how you made it. If you made it in an evil way or in a good way, you acquired this money for security, you're out of luck. He says, do, you know, do not trust in that. Don't set your heart on them, uh, because... They will not, he says, they're only a breath. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them because they won't sustain you. So don't trust in money. Don't trust in might. Don't trust in men. Trust in God at all times. And then he goes on just to uh, pull things together for us and said, so as you're coming in there, you're coming to, to God, who do you trust? And then what do you believe? If you're facing adversity, you know who to trust in, and then you know what to believe in. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, an idiom that the Hebrew writers used. Kind of, you know, God saying something once is enough. He's God. You need to believe him. He doesn't lie. So one thing I've spoken, but it's very important. So listen to this again. And it could mean that we need to hear with our ears, but also with our heart. One thing God has spoken, but two things I have heard, that you are God are what? Strong. That you, O God, are loving. Trust in the character of God. Come back to the character of God. What do you believe in? Do you believe the Word of God? We need to believe the Word of God. We also need to believe the ways of God. He's told us how He will deal with us, how he will shine his love upon us, and how he will also judge us. The last uh, verse talks, 11 and 12, says, You, O God, are strong, but that you, O God, are loving. He's merciful. God is merciful to us as sinners. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve life, but in his mercy, he gives that to us. God is merciful, but he's also moral. And it says in the end of the, of the psalm, he says, Surely you will reward God. You will reward each person according to what he has done. How we respond to this truth then determines our reward. If we rest in him, we get the reward of faithful guidance and leading. If we resist him, if we strive, then we are going to get you know, the frantic pace if we resist his call to salvation, we will not inherit salvation. If we accept his call to salvation, we, will be, we are promised that we can walk with him and live with him. So there's the wrong trusting and right trusting. As we just consider these words this morning, then we need to ask ourselves, how am I doing with this? Who do I believe? Or what do I believe in? Who do I trust? If you're here today and you don't know who you trust in, if you say, well, I trust myself, I trust in my, you know, what God's given me, I trust fate. Well, Scripture tells us differently that we need to trust in a Savior, a merciful Savior who will lead us, who will provide rest. Because Christ sacrificed himself to give us that rest, to allow us to have peace with God, to walk with him. And so right now you need to consider that. We encourage you to do it. And uh, 
if you have any questions, we'd love to answer those. But just respond to God's call in your life. If you have already done that and you're walking with, with Christ but yet frustrated, take the admonition from David to find rest in God. Take the time out to look and see again who God is, to know that he's your defense, to be still, to be sure, to be strong in him because we're responding to a great God who has promised us great things. Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. What a great promise. Be still before a great, holy, awesome God. Hide me now under your wings. Cover me within your mighty hand. When the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. Know His power in quietness and trust. When the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. Join me when the oceans rise and thunders roar. I will stay with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. Know His power in quietness and trust. When the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. 
Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that promise to fill us when we are empty, to give us peace when we rest in you. Help us to take the words of this psalm to heart, to step back from the issues we face and put them in your hands to trust you to work them out. Thank you, Lord, for all your work. Thank you for the opportunity to return that love to you, to share that love with others. Take these gifts that we give you today and use them for your power as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.